Spirits and Chat with John and Matt. I am Matt Pullman. And I'm Jonathan Emerson. And this is season three of our podcast. So for season three of our podcast, we're going to do things a little different. We're going to be watching an episode of a classic TV show where the characters put on a show. Put on a show. Maybe they get cast in community theater. Maybe (laughs) they decide they want to be an actor that week or they put on their own show. This week, we're going to be talking about The Simpsons, specifically (laughs) season four, episode two, titled A Streetcar Named Marge. And this is the episode of The Simpsons where Marge joins the community theater and is cast as Blanche Dubois in a musical theater production of A Streetcar Named Desire. And we are laughing already because it's a great episode. Uh, before we get into the episode, let's talk about what we're drinking this weekend. Um, I'll hand the reins to you, John, because oh, I think right. you have more experience with this than I do. Well, uh, maybe in introducing the drink, but actually this particular uh, beverage uh, goes a long way back for both of us. So today, uh, because the, the drink is yellow, uh, we are sipping on some Mike's Hard Lemonade. So uh, this is a drink that uh, kind of seemed to evolve out of the, the Zimas or the Alt beer, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, revolution. It's a malt beverage. It's a malt I think beverage. That's, that's what the kids call it. Yeah, and that is at, at least in terms of uh, branding, uh, that seems to have been its key demographic when it first came out. You know, uh, the the younger crowd who maybe is just getting into uh, beer drinking uh, and needs things a little on the sweeter side still. Well. Let's not uh, <laughs> scandalize Mike's hard. They do not specifically advertise to underage oh, drinkers. Oh, not underage. What? I was just saying a younger, you know, that okay. sort okay. of uh, 21 to 21 okay. uh, <laughs> skill set. But uh, in any case, uh, the, the marketing itself has uh, changed over the years, whereas a lot of its competitors uh, brand-wise, you know, sort of phased out over time. Uh, key, key example, Zima. Uh, Mike's hard mm. lemonade has been around and evolved its brand and uh, continually added new flavors so um, it's uh, it's a it's a great uh, it's a great beverage to talk up to the to uh, drink while watching The Simpsons <laughs> right right I think that this was one of my first adult beverages right that I had probably with you I remember uh, oh definitely yeah. with me <laughs> I remember one time I was at your house I probably had like two or three and I woke up the next morning with a slight headache but I thought that's what a hangover was. <laughs> I remember like, oh, it was such a rough night and just feeling like, oh, this is the worst that it ever gets. Uh, right. Little, little did I know. <laughs> that, you live and you learn. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think this is the first time I've had one of these in probably about 15 years. The other memory I have of this drink is our first week that we lived in New York back in 2006. One of the first activities that we did for fun was we took the train down to Coney, Coney Island, Island yeah. and we had uh, Nathan's hot dogs and Mike's heart. So that's probably the last time that and, I sipped. And them. we were we were just new, just off the boat, so to speak, uh, in New York. So I, I think we shared that. I don't uh, think no. I think we both had our own. I think okay. I think uh, you're peppering <laughs> these memories with details to make it more sentimental. But no, we. I, we have we, we not splurged, yet. We splurged for the seven dollars. We have not yet been in such 
dire poverty straits that we had to split a beer. <laughs> I don't think things were that bad. Even though we were both unemployed at the time, I think we both shot out the six bucks. <laughs> but yeah, I just took another swig on Mike's heart. Uh, the thing as a eh, late 30-something person that I'm not as into this drink is the high sugar content. And I guess, again, this is why kids probably like this thing. But every time I drink it now, I just feel like I'm drinking uh, Sprite that's been slightly fermented. That's exactly what it tastes like. Um, you, you definitely need to be in the mood for a an alcoholic beverage on the sweeter side to, to really enjoy it. Uh, it would not hurt to also really enjoy lemonade because it does, it does have that zingy lemony flavor. So. Yeah, and it's also <laughs> yellow. And you know who else is yellow? The Simpsons. The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about our episode. Okay. Um, before we get into the episode itself, uh, what is your memory of The Simpsons? Was this a show you watched as a child? Do you remember this specific episode from the 90s? Right. So I was on board with The Simpsons since, epi- since the pilot. Like, I was there from the very beginning. Uh, we watched it pretty religiously uh, for many seasons. I want to say it was like maybe season seven or eight before I wasn't religiously watching it every week. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, I do remember this episode. It is uh, a classic. Um, I always loved its intersectionality with, with theater. It's always interesting to see um, how television handles uh, theater versus what theater is uh, in production and in reality. <laughs> so, um, you know, this is a great episode, and it's super funny and, and also uh, very, very touching uh, at the end. Yeah, yeah. So this episode is season four, which is kind of considered the golden era of Simpsons. Um, I'm like you. I think any kid growing up in the 90s, the Simpsons were just kind of part of uh, the fabric of the culture. Oh, sure. I, my very, very first Simpsons memory, I remember, I think I was in kindergarten when the show debuted. And I remember walking into the living room and there was, my mom was watching the show. I didn't know what it was, but it was a scene where Bart was taking a picture of his butt. <laughs> and then my mom screamed like, get out of the room, get out of the room. Oh. And I like was shocked because, well, it's a cartoon, but I'm not allowed to watch it. And it's also, it was a cartoon with cartoon nudity, which I had never <laughs> seen, which seemed a little spicy. Oh, um, spicier. So I remember season one, I wasn't allowed to watch it. But then a year later for season two, which would have been, I think, 1991, uh, Bart Mania was everywhere. In the oh, culture. yeah. You couldn't avoid it. And then I guess I think my family was like, uh, it's fine. Now, and I actually, <laughs> it was a show, you know, we actually watched with the family. Uh, can you guess how many Simpsons episodes have been created thus far? Oh, goodness. Hi. So we're, it's what, season... Did I, I, just take a guess what's the number 700 oh you're close so as of this recording i just had to google this there have been 639 wow. episodes of the simpsons the simpsons was just announced that they have been renewed for two more seasons what? after this oh that's cool uh, there was some talk that since disney bought them that maybe after this year which was when the current um order ran out uh, that this was going to move exclusively to Disney Plus and be a Disney Plus exclusive. Oh, wow. Um, that Disney would want this property on their own streaming service rather than on Fox, which they do not own Fox. Right. They own 20th Century Fox, which they own the content, but they don't, they don't own the network. But that's not the case. So 
Simpsons is going to be around for a long time. If you want to know more about The Simpsons, I highly suggest listening to a podcast called Talking Simpsons. Oh, um, yeah. I listen to it every week. Uh, one of the hosts, Bob Mackey, is from Youngstown, Ohio. Youngstown. Um, he has no idea who we are. Uh, <laughs> um, we also went to the same college. Uh so listen to that. That's kind of where some of my current Simpsons knowledge comes from. Uh, so let's get into the episode. Again, this episode is called A Streetcar Named Marge. Again, this is season four, episode two. This episode originally aired October 1st, 1992. Wow. It was directed by Rich Moore, and it was written by Jeff Martin. Um, and this, of course, is the episode where Marge joins the community theater. Um, so before we get into the scene-by-scene scene breakdown, uh, what are your thoughts on this episode? Did you like it? Did you hate it? No, I, I thought it was, uh, you know, one of the, the one of the more memorable. You know, you've seen so many episodes of The Simpsons. Uh, this is definitely one that, that stands out in my mind. And when I, when I think of... Um, popular episodes and, and episodes that, that stick out to me, uh, this one always comes up just to be, because it's so theatrical and so outlandish and crazy, uh, you know, with Marge like flying around um, at the end and stuff, just, just something you wouldn't even see on a normal Simpsons episode. Um, it not only touches on a lot of funny and, and maybe over-embellished, in some cases, theatrical tropes that anyone in the theater is going to relate to. Uh, you can tell definitely that the, the writers, um, you know, had some, uh, you know, uh, developmental uh, theater experiences and, and community theater experiences uh, growing up because there's a there's a lot of that uh, in the episode. Yeah. So when I was thinking about uh, new ideas for this podcast, I, I kind of centered our whole season three theme kind of just around how could we talk about this episode. <laughs> but this is such a good example of a show where a character joins the community theater. Uh, I like this episode a lot. I will say this is in my top five Simpsons episodes ever. Um, we'll get into it, but I think it, it really encaptures the feeling of joining the theater for the first time mm -hmm. and the struggles, the heartaches, the rejection. The, and the whole the, purpose of art. I mean, mm -hmm. it really touches on that at the end uh, as well. You know, the, the highs, the lows. Uh, I have it in my notes here. So production-wise... Uh, so Jeff Martin, who was the writer, um, a season before this, in season three, he actually pitched an idea to James L. Brooks that he wanted to write an episode where Homer is cast in a community theater production of 1776, um, but they <laughs> tooled with the idea to make it Marge. Uh, another reason why I like this episode is that I always like a Simpsons episode where you get into the rich inner life of Marge Simpson. Right. Which is something you don't really see a lot in the show. Um, well, they even make fun of that per periodically in the spaceship episode when everyone else gets a title and she's like, Marge. Yeah, Marge, uh, <laughs> throughout its whole, what, we're on 32-year run and counting, um, Marge's deal is that she's just kind of the mom and that's kind of all she gets. There's <clears throat> a couple, you know, Marge gets a job episodes, but at the end of the episode, she has to find a reason to quit so they can return to her being a housewife but marge is one of my favorite characters just for the sole purpose is she's so sincere right marge does not know how to not be sincere and i love that about the character she i'll say she's even more sincere than lisa who lisa sometimes gets so caught up in her 
own intelligence or her own far left politics that <laughs> she kind of like the, the example is the Lisa the vegetarian episode right where Lisa gets so into her head about this new thing she discovered that she ends up kind of being an ass to everyone um, I think this episode is also funny because it does track with Marge's development as a character that we see in the show we've seen in flashback episodes that Marge actually at her heart is an artist right that in high school, she was captain of the debate team. Um, her and Homer actually meet because Homer has a crush on her and he fakes needing to pass French. And he knows that Marge is a straight-A French student. So Marge starts tutoring him in French. And we also know that when Marge was in high school, she was a painter. That she painted pictures of Ringo Starr. And then there's also an episode where she has to paint a picture of Mr. Burns. So, so Marge does have this kind of artistic spirit and their popsicle stick uh sculptures episode true true <laughs> yeah great no that's of course i yeah. went for the i went for the folk art yeah but, it's, uh... kind of the, it's kind of the low-hanging fruit uh but, but no and i think it, it's also kind of true you, you see people who do have these interests and then they get married and they have kids and they kind of lose that part of them which i think is kind of the sad part of marge simpson that we see in the flashbacks that at one point she was kind of an aspirational character that she did kind of have uh, a lot of hopes and dreams mm-hmm. uh, but then she gets married and she kind of has to give that all up to raise her kids uh but let's get into the episode all right so we open um scene one the family is watching the miss american girl pageant <laughs> uh homer is making all sorts of comments to them we see my favorite uh there's a comment for Meryl Streep <laughs> perfume, where the perfume is um, in a little Oscar bottle, and you can smell like a winner. <laughs> I also really loved. I also really loved the um, part where, as they were announcing each contestant's state, uh, Homer was throwing in yeah. you know an anecdote about each state, mm-hmm. and then they get to Delaware, and he <laughs> he says, "Good, for good her. for." Her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Poor Delaware. Yeah. Um, and we see Marge. Uh, sometimes there's a piano in the house. Sometimes there's not. Right. Um, but Marge is warming up on the piano, and she mentions that she wants to audition for this show. It's a musical version of Streetcar named Desire, and she hasn't done a play since high school. So we do know that she has acted right. in her past. Um, so can we just start out with like the musicalization of something like a streetcar named Desire. No, let's. I'm glad because I, I I forgot to mention this that we didn't talk about the streetcarness of it. Uh, had you ever seen Streetcar Named Desire or not, read it? Or... Not until yesterday. Yeah. So in preparation for this podcast, because I um, my main goal is to educate the children, <laughs> um, I wanted to come in as knowledgeable as I could. Is I rewatched the movie version. I've I've never seen the play. I think I saw the movie in high school or college, but I forgot all about it. Okay. Um, so I rewatched the the movie. So basically, the plot. It's a very simple plot. Is Blanche Dubois is a Southern belle. She moves in with her sister uh, Stella and her husband Stanley. Uh, Stella and Stanley are kind of in an abusive relationship. He's physically and emotionally abusive, and she keeps running back to him. And later, we find out that Blanche has been fired from her job as a teacher for uh, basically having sex with an underage student. And then she's also been living in a house of ill repute. So oh. there's rumors that she may have been a prostitute. And she comes in, she's obviously having some mental issues and living with the abuse of Stanley makes her 
more, for lack of better words, crazy and right. mentally unstable. And she has a breakdown, and that's the very end. She gets carted off. Uh, but the fact that's what's funny about this episode, I'm so glad you, you brought us back to this because I wanted to talk about this before we got too deep into the episode. Is that the joke in 1992 is that a streetcar named Desire would be such a ridiculous <laughs> property to make a musical off of. But this is 1992. This is before Disney gets to Broadway. This is before Lion King the musical. This is before Shrek the musical. Right. This is before Legally Blonde the musical, where every movie is now... turned into a yeah, musical, yes. Yeah, so now watching this in 2021, it doesn't seem ridiculous at all that streetcar would be a musical like why not well it's it's also completely it's not only a ridiculous show to musicalize we're we're talking about something that um it, it's just i i don't know where they came up with it but it's it's pure community it is 100 percent a community theater megatrope to take <laughs> something First of all, to, to rewrite source material without permission. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Put music to yeah. it. <laughs> and then yeah. and then change the entire meaning of the author's yep. intent. Yep. Um, yeah, it it happens the, all yeah. the time. Um, yeah. And uh, ridiculously, ridiculously, ridiculously so. Yeah, later in the episode, we, we never find out if this is an original musical or did I'm just, the director adapt this bit. Yeah, we, we don't know. If, is, this, is this the premiere? I'm, of O Streetcar? I'm just, I, I don't think that that would be, um, at least with permission, happening in Springfield. So That's true. And being such an old property uh, and a property like Streetcar Named Desire. So for for those of our audience that don't know this, that 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 production, or I should say, A Streetcar Named Desire is still a super popular thing to produce. Like companies right. pop that out all the time. Mm -hmm. They'll Companies have done that show more than once. Well, I think for a community theater, it would be a great play to do because it's mostly female leads. Right. It's two females. It's basically two males and then some background people. But it's just, I mean, it's true in professional theater and amateur theater. There's more women right. auditioning than men, especially women over 30. There's way more women over 30 than men over 30 uh, in the acting business um, community or professional. So right. it makes, you know, it's like every community theater does arsenic and old lace. Every community theater does. Right. So being a, being so commonly done, I wouldn't think that the property would even give the, the rights to adapt it would be my guess. But but let's let's say they did get permission. Um, it's clear based on the adaptation itself, if you're watching the show and have any experience in these things, um, based on the nature of the director of that production, and we'll get into him in a second, uh, played by John Lovitz, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but it is that type of director who would do an adaptation exactly like this. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, the last thing I'm going to say about Streetcar Named Desire is that I did Google... Has Streetcar Named Desire ever been a musical in real life, even since then? And the answer is no. To this day, <laughs> there still has not been a musical version of Streetcar. There has been an opera, oh. and there has been several ballets, which makes sense because in Streetcar, the emotions are so high. Oh, yes. That, of course, it'd be, it, you know... It's a viscerally physical yeah, piece. Yeah, because that's why yeah. musicals work, because your emotion gets so high that you just have to break out into song or to dance. Um, but I think maybe one of the reasons why this has not been a legit musical 
yet is because this episode exists. <laughs> I maybe no author wants to be compared to, <laughs> to the streetcar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it, I mean, if it's been a ballet and an opera, but not legit musical theater, and it the property really lends itself to be mu- musicalized because it's set in the '40s in Louisiana and has this kind of a southern bluesy bourbony score or at least the movie does okay and it's so it's uh like it's highly there's a high element of style to the piece right it's very new orleans and it's very like this the set is gorgeous in the movie and the costumes are to die for and it's super high emotions there's violence and love and so like it's all the things that make a good musical but it hasn't been a musical and i think that's because of the simpsons um <laughs> before we get into the auditions the last thing that made me laugh is that there. Getting back to the pageant the family's watching, Miss um, Delaware apologizes for her unfortunate remarks at the UN. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I, I had skimmed over that. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's get into scene two. So in scene two is actually the auditions. And what I like about this scene is that this is a community theater. So all the people are auditioning are people that we have met. They're all the denizens of Springfield. It's not like we are getting a professional troupe of actors. We have Helen Lovejoy, who ends up playing Stella. Uh, we have Apu, who is the newspaper collector. We have Lionel Hutz is Mitch. Chief <laughs> Wiggum is playing the doctor. Uh, Jasper is in it. And who else? Oh, yeah, the director himself, who ends up recasting. Uh, uh, Otto gets cast, but then he loses part on opening <laughs> night. And then we meet Ned, and Ned is auditioning for the role of Stanley. And Ned mentions that <laughs> he is so excited because he has played Blanche Dubois at in the all, past at an all-boys school. <laughs> oh, my God. He says something in a later scene that I'm definitely going to touch on, but it, it uh, rem- reminds me of a number of actors that I've uh, worked with well, over the years. It, it's so funny because Ned is Ned, who Ned eventually becomes is so Christian-y and so right-wingy that it's hard to imagine him in full drag <laughs> playing <laughs> Blanche, but I guess you could say he was younger and it's before he got more radicalized in his Christianity. Um, also, I, uh, how they cast the Neds... <laughs> I was going to talk about this. Yes. Uh, go on, yeah. No, yeah. no. You... Yeah, how they cast uh, the role of Stanley is all the men just take off their shirts uh, and the director <laughs> comes in and we see that Ned is ripped and Jacked. shredded to the gods, yeah. so Ned gets Stanley. And that is the audition process for certain uh, styles of theater in New York City and elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and actually, it's not far off for, for certain community theaters that may not have, or community programs that may not have a lot of men auditioning. You know, it really would, you know, be maybe not as ridiculous as that, but it would be heavily based on type. Right. Right. So that... I mean, you know, of course... Ned gets the part because all these other guys are kind of fat. And Otto has Super a weird yeah. tattoo. Well, he has this huge tattoo on his chest. And the director's like, Ew. And then Otto has that great line like, If you like that, you should see my butt. <laughs> and also, we should mention in the scene, we meet our director and our guest star for this episode. Uh, the director is Lulin Sinclair. <laughs> he says that in his career, he has directed three plays and has had three heart attacks <laughs> and is planning on his fourth. So we've known many, I'll preface this statement with, I've known so many great directors, uh, 
at the community level, at the professional level. So uh, this apply does not apply to most of them, but I have definitely worked with this director. Oh, type I was going to say, John, this applies to most. <laughs> this of applies that. to a lot of folks. This but... is hilarious. Uh, there is such a thing, definitely in community theater, where. Uh, a person will go off to New York, LA, maybe have some sort of success as an actor, and then move back to their hometown, uh -huh. and then end up working in the community theater, and absolutely feels like they are 100% slumming it, <laughs> and make sure that the <laughs> entire knows it. cast knows it. So, uh, I think John Lovitz is so funny. I think this character is very... Very relatable. It very relatable. Also, the the prep work the uh, actors were doing in the quote unquote holding room uh, prior to the audition uh, would would give any actor flashbacks uh, <laughs> of what an audition holding room yeah, looks like. Yeah, I love people you, you, making you, random noise. You, people... you see Jasper, who's the old man with a long beard. He's in a leotard. <laughs> He's doing stretches. He's putting his angle behind his head. Um, oh god. Uh, we should mention when the women audition. Uh, he casts them all off. Like Marge gets to sing like two bars, mm -hmm. and he's like, "No." I think he says something like, "I'm gonna play Stella," or, or he was gonna he was gonna shut the production down. Right, he right, right. Find his lead. And then we get to our first clip that we have to share with you. Okay, where Marge is on the phone telling Homer about her audition. <sighs> Forget it. Just strike the set, square the stage. This production is. I I didn't get the part. You were right. Outside interests are stupid. Wait a minute. Oh, I'll come home right away. All right, I'll pick up a bucket of fried chicken, extra skin, <laughs> rolls, chocolate cream parfait. <gasps> Stop bothering my blanche! <gasps> That's how she got cast. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, I, I think there is some truth, though, to... As I haven't directed too much, I produced and directed a bit, seeing someone who's completely green, as in they have no theater experience, right. but you see that they do have some connection to their emotions and seeing some sort of spark mm -hmm. in them. So even though that's kind of a weird, it's played as comedy, there is some truth to that, to a director seeing an actor in a very... In a, a real-world situation yeah. where you can, where, where, he, where he can see her truth without where he can read her emotion, see her emotion and her truth in that moment without her having many words to express it. So that that's very valid, uh, especially at the community level, but really all directors use it. Uh, it's why uh, during auditions uh, you end up in conversation with the director uh, for for a bit uh, in addition to doing your, your sides and whatnot. Um, so that that's very valid. Um, I, I think uh, I, I skipped over something earlier that I thought was a little funny. Uh, do we also not all know that that person who is not at all involved in theater that hears you got cast in your dream role in a, in a show you're super excited about and their first question is something along the lines of is there frontal nudity? Oh, I'm just going to get it. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, this is scene three. Marge is at home and she is telling her family that she got cast in this play <laughs> and Homer's question is is there any frontal nudity? <laughs> and, and Bart asks are there any jive-talking robots? <laughs> <laughs> so that's basically it. Uh, then we skip to the next scene, which is they're actually rehearsing for this. Uh, Lionel Hutz. <laughs> <laughs> 
his introduction to the cast. Oh, I, I love Lionel Hutz so much. And I'm not he's my dude. I love yeah. it because he kind of reminds me of you. <laughs> the, best, the best parts of for, Lionel Hutz. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, Matt and I's Simpson characters. So I'm Lionel Hutz, and you are um, I'm Edna. Edna Kerbaffle. Yeah. <laughs> so we meet the cast, and I already mentioned who got cast as what part, but Lionel mentions that he is suing the play <laughs> on behalf of all the people who did not get cast. And also, I play Mitch. <laughs> so funny. Uh, uh, also, this is the this is where I'm going to take umbrage, even though I know it's a cartoon, where Marge and Ned are rehearsing for the first time. And their first scene, they are rehearsing their fight scene. Mm-hmm. And anyone who's been in a play knows that when you rehearse fight scenes, those are very specific rehearsals. Oh, yes. Usually those rehearsals are just two hours by themselves of just doing the fight, and you have a fight choreographer Certified or a fight, fight captain, director. Yep. someone who has experience, and you start off rehearsing things very slowly. You don't have any props. Um, there's lots that you check in. So so there's a, there's a lot that goes into a fight call, and Homer, uh, I'm sorry, Ned... <laughs> And March are just going at it. And they're also really, in theater these days, it's actually also very appropriate to have, uh, for a scene like like the one uh, that Matt's describing, he's throwing her onto a bed. There's, you know, some some uh, sexual uh, and, and intimacy uh, exactly, things going on. Yeah. So there definitely should be intimacy direction. These are all different roles, you know, outside of the director. It wouldn't be just the director standing there uh, right, doing right. that, uh, unless for, they were certified to do those for things. For ease of story, but that was my... My first Your nitpick. That's my <laughs> first nitpick. Um, then we can get into the B plot of this episode, which is Maggie at daycare. Because <laughs> Maggie, Marge, is taking Maggie with her to rehearsals. Maggie is interrupting everyone. <laughs> and so Lulin mentions that his sister runs a daycare. His sister is also played by John Lovitz. Um, he's playing a dual role. I don't think she gets a name in this episode, but... There is a gag where we see the outside of the daycare, and it's called the Ayn Rand School <laughs> for Tots. Do you have background with Ayn Rand or have read any of her work? I haven't, I haven't read. Uh, so we, we, we watched Atlas Shrugged. I, I haven't read any of her stuff just because I, I don't think that... I'm mentally uh, aligned in, in many ways with her philosophies. Um, no, no. So so the deal with Ayn Rand is she invented this political theory called objectivism. And objectivism means that you're basically supposed to take care of yourself and not anyone else. And if you just take care of yourself, then the world will be better because things will trickle down. It's kind of the prelude to Reaganism, trickle down economics um and also laissez-faire oh yes uh business policies i feel like i'm i've seen this episode at least 10 times but i feel like i'm missing the joke the joke why is the school called the ayn rand school for tots i guess the joke is again since ayn rand kind of preached selfishness that it's it's a funny name for a preschool it it is a um, funny name for a preschool and i think what they're trying to convey to the viewer is that it's sort of like the the prison camp version of of a, of a daycare. You know, yeah. like it's going to be run super efficiently. The babies aren't going to be coddled. You know, that sort of exactly. Idea. Yeah, yeah. And we get into a thing with her pacifier. Um, my background with Ayn Rand is at one point about ten years ago, I tried to read Atlas Shrugged, but it's about a thousand pages, and the words are tiny, and it was just <laughs> a lot. And I saw the movie, which was a big. 
nothing. And so I, and I, I saw one of the plays that she wrote, but I, I just, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm still not getting a joke here. Right. So if our listeners are more attuned to Ayn Rand philosophy, uh, please let me know what I'm missing. Also, The Simpsons does have a history of including other Ayn Rand jokes. Uh, later, there's a later episode where Agnes Skinner uh, admits that she thinks that Ayn Rand is super hot and doesn't realize that Ayn Rand was a woman. <laughs> uh, and then later in the later 2000s, there's, I think it's a Treehouse episode. It's again with Maggie at mm. the daycare where she is trying to build this gigantic tower out of blocks that keeps getting punished by the school. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a metaphor of the fountainhead, which sure. I haven't read, but it's all about how the regulation is fucking up her <laughs> her little block thing and then Jodie Foster vo- voices Maggie and does a speech from the fountainhead and, <laughs> and it's a thing uh, but let's play our next clip where we meet Lulin's sister Maggie is allergic to strained pears and she likes a bottle of warm milk before nap time a bottle? <laughs> Mrs. Simpson do you know what a baby's saying when she reaches for a bottle? Baba? She's saying, I am a leech. (laughs) Our aim here is to develop the bottle within. That sounds awfully harsh. Mrs. Simpson, I don't like to toot my own horn, but we're the only daycare centered in town that's not currently under investigation by the state. (laughs) Oh. Well, be a good girl, Maggie. (laughs) Okay. So I guess that makes sense why Marge puts her there. Uh, but then we get to the next scene where Marge and Ned are rehearsing again, and Marge cannot get angry. Right. So this is where this is where she's trying to break the bottle. Uh, mm-hmm. Quintessential scene of the actual of the actual uh, play and, and movie. And uh, my favorite, my absolute favorite moment with this. Um, is when uh, Ned reaches over, having previously played the role himself, and says, I don't mean to be an armchair Armchair Blanche. Blanche. Yeah, I wrote that down. That's (laughs) hilarious. I cannot tell you how many actors I've encountered over time that uh, have played the role before and Mm. don't mean to be an armchair, but yeah, it's... it's, Yeah, yeah, it's either actors... It's the most annoying thing in the world. (laughs) Yeah, either actors who have done it or directors who... I've directed this play so many times and they're just kind of on autopilot. Right. Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess for for me, I, I made the mistake once. Um, you and I were in a play a couple years ago, and then maybe two years ago, I saw that it was casting, and in my cover letter, I wrote that I had played the role before, <laughs> and I did not get called in, and I realized that may have been a social faux pas on my end, that maybe I was sending them a red flag that I was going to be difficult. Uh, I really wasn't. I, I was just trying to catch their attention, and it kind of backfired on me. Um, <laughs> but then we get into our next clip, where Marge and Homer are in bed talking about their day. Easy, easy. Yes, 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 yes. Go! Seven, ten, split. Homer, can you run some lines with me? Make Bart do it. It'll just take a sec. Gutterball. Go! You see, Marge? While you're off in your own little world, you forget that other people have problems, too. Yeah, so Homer is being an ass in this episode. There are sometimes <laughs> in my notes where I just wrote Homer equals ass, which I think they're, <laughs> the writers are trying to do a uh, parallel to the actual streetcar named Desire, where mm-hmm. Homer is just being a jerk 
the entire time. Uh, we should mention, um, Homer's playing Game Boy <laughs> in the beginning of the scene and is so self-involved that he cannot even be bothered to help out Marge. Not, not even his wife. But uh, one takeaway I had from that when, when I saw that moment of the scene, um, I, I, I was reminded that um, almost regardless of who, like, I know that you would help. We've helped each other with lines. Um but for the most part, my finding has been that no one wants to help run lines with you, ever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people will, um, but and, and especially theater people will get it, um, but uh, people outside of the theater world, um, my it's almost like, I don't want to run lines with you, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, it's kind of a thankless task, but, but your husband, your partner your, should. Yes, especially like especially when you're not, when your alternative is playing a, a Game Boy game, you know, like, and that's a heavy line role as well. So it probably would have been... That is, a, no, I watched that movie and so much of, at least the play, is just Blanche soliloquy, what's that word, soliloquizing? Uh, so, soliloquizing? Yeah, talking a lot. Yeah. Giving these big speeches about life back on the phone. Da, 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 da. There's so many lines. And for someone like Marge, who has not been in a play since high school, this is a big, a big ask for her. And I think there's also in this dynamic where Marge is such a people pleaser and Marge um, is always home, always attending to everyone else's needs that Homer cannot fathom that Marge has this outside life. On her own. Oh, you right. can definitely see like the jealousy, uh, especially when, I mean, it's kind of, I'm not trying to sympathize with Homer, but um, when you have a really close friend, close husband, close partner, and they start doing something else, and then you're not involved, right? It, it there is kind of an awkwardness, but, but Homer could at least pretend to care, and he does not. Um, then we get to the next scene, which is Maggie back in the daycare. Uh, uh, they locked up her pacifier, and apparently this whole Maggie subplot is a parody of the movie The Great Escape with mm-hmm. Steve McQueen, which I've never seen, and I did not watch that movie in preparation. I totally, I totally thought it was like a uh, Mission Impossible sequence. It, that's what yeah. it reminded me of. But I guess there is direct parallels. Oh, okay. Um, when Maggie gets put in the in the pen, that happens to the Steve McQueen character, okay. and her throwing the ball against the wall is the exact same thing oh, that he okay. does. And even the music, that... Da, 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 that is from the movie, too. Uh, at one point, uh, Maggie is looking for other things to put in her mouth because the teacher takes her pacifier. And I just noticed on this watch that she actually grabs a Bart Simpson toy <laughs> for, like, half a second. Like, I had to blink, and it was gone. But Easter think, egg. Yeah, yeah. Egg. But I think, again, this was the height of the merchandising in the 90s where... There were Simpson toys, Simpson video games, Simpsons t-shirt, uh, Simpsons wherever we everywhere. And the Simpsons, even the early seasons, they get kind of meta about how popular oh, sure. they are and all the junk <laughs> they're producing. Um, then we cut back to the rehearsal. And again, Marge cannot get angry. Uh, and Homer comes in. And again, Homer is being a complete ass to Marge. Marge is trying to rehearse a fight call. And Homer <laughs> keeps getting in the way um i guess marge is i guess kind of method in this where she can't get angry unless she really is angry so it's actually a little i it it looked to me both to be stanislavski 
and a little bit of so she goes from Stanislavski to which, Method. Which is yeah, Stanislavski is I think what Marlon Brando is. is it, yes, it's it's um, she's using the lived experience with Homer to fuel the anger in the scene. That's you know basic Stanislavski, and then when she um, gets so angry at Ned in this situation because of it all and then physically attacks him, uh, that, that's where it gets a little, uh, I, I jest, but um, what I would call a little bit more uh, method. Um, yeah. Yeah, so she's trying to play the scene where Blanche and uh, Stanley. Stanley, you know, keep getting Stanley, Homer, Ned, all these names confused. And so finally she channels all her rage at Homer and almost stabs Ned. I wrote this down. Marge gets mad equals almost kills Ned. Again, there should be a fight call. And also, you should not be working with a real A real prop. glass bottle. Yeah, I think yeah, that's... for glass props on Broadway, there's like a sugar Sh- type sh- Sugar of... glass. I mean, that's yeah. that's used in, in even, even down at the community level. If, if you're going to... Um, you would either have a breakaway... Like a, it would be brought in made of sugar glass, like a breakaway glass, or you'd make have you'd have it made on site. Well, well I think if they're still this early in the rehearsal process, they probably would not even be using a glass. Oh, like she'd be like miming, miming it, it, or yeah. using like anything else, like a stuffed animal or something that could not injure Ned at all. Right. Um, and then we got to commercial, and then <laughs> this is actually my favorite scene, the one that's coming up where. Uh, Marge and the family are at the dinner table. Salt me. Here you are, Homer. <laughs> what the? Why are you talking like that? The place tomorrow night. I've got to stay in character. Hey, Mom, would it help if I talk like this, too? It might. And I'll talk like this. Bob's <laughs> your uncle, mate. That really doesn't help, Father. <laughs> Big Daddy, would y'all mind passing a little old biscuit? Can I slug off school tomorrow? Got a pain in me, Gulliver. I'm living in a cuckoo clock. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, so, I remember one point, I haven't done too many plays with accents, but I did do a play uh, in 2008 called An Experiment with an Air Pump, where I played um, a British person. I remember actually talking in my accent um, in my free time, just to stay in character. Sure. Um, did you ever have to do that for an accent? All the time. Um, and what's great about that is if, well, so, some people love accent work and some people hate it. I've always loved it, at least for um, certain European accents. Uh, there's there's certain accent work I've struggled with, but I when I'm playing a character that is uh, utilizing an accent, I'm really big on getting down to even the regional dialect. So, um, I don't look at it so much as staying in character as, uh, quote unquote, like sharpening the toolbox by practicing speaking it in your real life. And then I find it easier to, to do it while acting. You just kind of click, it kind of clicks in. But accent work is hard, and I totally understand what Homer's going through in this moment. <laughs> because when you are working in a uh, in an artistic family or in... Uh, plays with multiple people using multiple accents, you do feel like you're inside a cuckoo clock. <laughs> yeah, no, I also love how supportive Lisa is and how just what an asshole Bart is. Too. <laughs> He's like, hello, gov- hello, governor. Hello, hello, hello. What's He's this like, then? Oh, that, this is his Bart's mantra. Says, this isn't going to be helpful, but it's an excuse for me to be weird. So, um, so then Marge realizes that she has to go meet Ned to rehearse on their own time, which which does happen a lot when you're doing these shows. Um Especially something that's line heavy. Um, oh, I've sure. done it before where you, you go and sometimes you meet up at a Starbucks or at the person's house and you run lines. And 
So again, it seems like Marge is only rehearsing these violent scenes. Like they don't really get into the other parts of the play, which I guess makes sense. These are probably the most intense scene, yes. most line heavy. But uh, Homer's putting breaks. So he goes outside and he does the Marge, <laughs> which is a reference to the play in the movie, the Stella. Yes. Stella. So in the movie, they get into a fight. Stella runs upstairs. And at this point, Marlon Brando, his like shirt is like hanging off him. Like Marlon Brando is basically shirtless throughout this entire movie. Like he just can't keep his shirt on. It's either like <laughs> stuck to his chest, like it's doing him a favor. Or every time he, he's sweaty and it's sticking and it's just, it's a very ab heavy movie. The movie oh, yeah. at least. Like the abs are, are the fifth character. Oh yeah. And this play but in the movie uh that scene where he yells stella she actually comes down the stairs Mm -hmm. and then they kiss and they they show him going into the bedroom and then they show a close-up of blanche's face and she walks in and she looks shocked and then she walks out and it's because it was the early 50 they still had what was called the haze code which meant that movies couldn't have nudity, they couldn't have swearing, they couldn't talk about gay stuff or this or that. Okay. Um, so the movie is implying that Stella and Stanley have this very intense, violent relationship where they like get violent with each other and then they go and like have weird sex. Uh, <laughs> Make whoopee. But, uh, <laughs> but Homer screams and nothing happens. Uh, then we get back to the bedroom. Yep. And... <laughs> Oh, my favorite it? line of the episode. <laughs> what was it? Go ahead. Okay, so she's like, uh, she's like, why can't you be more supportive? And he's like, because I don't care. <laughs> Forgive my poor uh, accent, but um, also that that is there's a lot of like for anyone in theater, um, you know, you end up in a pro a project like like the one Marge is in, you know, something super important to you. Like it becomes your world and the the castmates you're working with become your family. Yeah, totally. And uh, people on the outside of that don't understand it, you know, yeah, and you're no, like, well, absolutely. why can't you feel about this like I do? And they never say it uh, as honestly as Homer did, but the answer is correct. Yeah, but Homer is, I mean, yeah, Homer is such, <laughs> don't an, care. He's such an ass, he yeah. can't even pretend. He's, so, I love, he's still is mad around. Is jerk, jerk-ass Homer seasons? Uh, well, jerk-ass Homer, uh, that, that's a reference to Talking Simpsons yeah. podcast, where the writers were talking about. <laughs> Thank you for that. Some episodes, Homer is just so terrible, and some he's actually a nice person. This is a, an example of a jerk-ass Homer moment, where he's so matter-of-fact, saying, why don't you support me? Because I don't care. Like, <laughs> he just does not understand how Marge would want to have some sort of outside life. And uh, he mentions, like, oh, theater, this is one of your kooky projects. Like painting, uh, crochet, or Lamas class. Like, <laughs> anything that Marge does that is not waiting on Homer, he cannot get behind. Which really sucks. And it really sucks when you're, when you're working so hard on a project and... Your friends, your family aren't being supportive. They, they don't um, get it. Yeah. Or, they, or they don't get it. Um, so I kind of feel for Marge in this. Absolutely. Uh, then we cut back to the school, and it's Maggie does her little great escape. Uh, it's cute. I just wrote it down, is. I wrote cute smiley face. I, I like seeing Maggie. Maggie, since she can't talk, there's not a lot that the Simpsons can ever do with her character but i do like when she has a little spunk or a little pizzazz every time they show her so they've had her speak once i believe in one of the episodes so once in 
a normal episode. She is voiced by Elizabeth Taylor in the episode called Maggie's First Word. The other times that she talks are like uh, Triassa Horror episodes or like okay. non-canonical, like like little sketches. Gotcha. But when they do let her do something, what always imp- she's a ninja. I mean, she's she's yeah. always highly capable. She took on the mob, as I recall. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> she killed Mr. Bur- no, she shot Mr. She shot Mr. Burns for she stealing saves her candy. Homer from drowning. Yeah. At one episode. Uh, yeah, so I like when they can... I just burped because of the carbonation That's of Mike's Heart Lemonade. Heart lemonade. <laughs> yeah, I, I channeled my inner Homer in West Groves. <laughs> Another thing about this episode that was funny and weird, uh, the babies all get their pacifiers. Homer walks in and it's just babies sucking on pacifiers. And I do like his reaction, which is just... <laughs> Back oh, away. Babies. <laughs> and then there, I'm going to show you the picture because I have it. I never understood. They're just a weird guy walking a dog. So this cartoon is little man walking the dog. It's supposed to be Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, that's uh, what that was. Because him walking in and just having babies be quiet is a reference to the ending of the movie The Birds. Oh, okay. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Yes. But it ends with the family walk, leaving their house. They're being terrorized by birds. And they walk out. And all of a sudden, the birds are all just sitting there. And they just drive away. And they're all... It's so creepy. Because, you know, at any minute, they could all be attacked. So that's what... I never understood who this chubby man was and it's such a three second gag but they yeah they they made him so they gave him such a distinct look but i wasn't so, sure what it's it was. so distinct that it it's one of those things like this is a reference to something but i have no idea what the hey this is supposed to be and so i'm <laughs> glad oh there it is right now and i'm queuing up the next clip which is opening night and i'm just gonna play it because this is so funny. This opening <laughs> number, we'll talk about the show. This might be my favorite song ever in The Simpsons. <laughs> and also we get the opening night speech from director Lulin. Perhaps we are all a little mad, we who don the cap and bells and tread beneath the proscenium arch. But tonight, you will all be transformed from dead-eyed suburbanites into white-hot <laughs> grease fires of pure entertainment. Except you, you're not working out. I'll be playing your part. Drag. Long before the Superdome, where the Saints of football play, lived a city that the damned call home. Hear their hellish rondelay. Okay, we'll we'll pause there. Oh my goodness, so much to unpack. Oh yes. Uh, so one, I love, <laughs> I love his opening night speech, which it's a thing that happens. Uh, for your opening night, there is some sort of gathering where the director says something, maybe the stage manager. There, there is that kind of energy right before you're about to go on stage, mm-hmm. uh, which I think they capture that. I love that he tells them they're going to be transferred from Dead Eyes to Suburbanites. Yeah. Um, and so this opening number, I was trying to 
think uh, what this musical reminds me of in terms of what they're trying to parody. Uh, in my notes here, it says they were trying to parody the opening number of Sweeney Todd, okay. which is talking about London being kind of dirty. This was the era in the early 90s where the big musicals at the time were Phantom of the Opera, Miss Saigon, mm -hmm. Les Mis, these kind of big, overproduced oh, sure. spectacle shows. And I think this is the vibe that they're trying to show. And I think what tips it off is that they do have a turntable oh, yes. <laughs> on the stage. It starts off with um, uh, the stadium, mm -hmm. and then it turns around to, re to reveal the set, which is... Uh, and Les Miserables, yeah, like it's Les Miserables is a turntable, like yes. the whole entire set. So it also is hilarious that on the Springfield budget that they could afford a turntable, which is not cheap. I mean, I'm going to go into this a little bit more in depth in in a, in a moment. I think you're doing the the clip with um, Marge flying. Mm -hmm. um, there are a couple things that. Um, it, all I all I really have to say is that um, I I really wish that we uh, in the off. Broadway and off off Broadway world had some of this Springfield money because um, <laughs> getting a turn a turntable uh, I I have seen one off Broadway I've seen one at the community level in fact um, but it's super rare because most companies don't have the budget for them most companies when they had the Superdome flying in uh, or no that's part of the turntable but they have fly rails that yeah it's it's uh, magical <laughs> right and, <laughs> and we... unrealistic. <laughs> Uh, then we get to the next scene where Marge makes her entrance and she sings her song. I made a note that Marge is a good actress. Yeah. I think that for, it's a cartoon and it's silly, but for someone with really no theater experience that you can tell that she really commits to her part and she's able to convey a lot of emotion and, you know, good for her. Yeah. You know, it's, she talks how she talks. She's got chops, baby. Yeah. Uh, and then... We get further on into the play, uh, where at the end, where Marge takes a turn and gets on a harness and is <laughs> flying around. I'm just gonna play the clip. I don't know how to introduce this clip <laughs> except for Marge is on it a harness. It speaks for itself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the end of the show uh i love i love the ending of their version because the movie ends with blanche having a full mental breakdown and then they take her off to the sanitarium and then she has this line you whoever you are which means she's disassociated she's disassociated um i have always depended on the kindness of strangers and the what in the play with that means is that um, 
For one, since Blanche comes from nobility and upper class, she expects strangers to treat her well, but they have not treated her well. Strangers have not treated Blanche well. Mm. It's strange men who have mentally abused her and caused her mental breakdown. But The Simpsons, uh, in their production, completely missed the point and decided they ought to end on an up note and and making this line the whole moral of the show, which is the opposite of what the moral of the show is. They changed the entire meaning. I mean, so there's so much about this scene that you could spend time on. I mean, so Marv's flying. I just noticed when we were rewatching, Barney Gumble is her is is the guy rolling. Yeah, Yeah, you don't want Barney Gumble on the on the end rope of your your flight rig. Uh, <laughs> and also Marge has the harness around her waist, which would is not how you fight. No. It should be a chest harness. Be, like if it's around your stomach, that's gonna hurt like hell. Like, yeah, it, it, yeah, that 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 was uh, that was a bit odd. Uh I I, again, I also like the lasers. Uh, yeah, again, this uh, this I need this Springfield money for, for New York City productions because um I, I believe that, that if I'm not mistaken, their stage is in the school. It looked like, yeah, it's an auditorium. It's an auditorium of some sort. This auditorium for this episode in Springfield has um, automatically moving cans with auto color changers. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just... um, What are, for the audience, what are color changers? Ah, so um, I have a bit of a lighting design background. So um, these are lights that, so most lighting, most theatrical lighting is... You get out a ladder, you go up there, you uh, hang the light, you focus it where you want it to go, and then you you patch it and program it. Um, a very very ex- there's a very very expensive type of light uh, called uh, an autumn that that essentially can be entire its movement, its focus, and its coloration can be entirely controlled electronically from the booth. Uh, they are very rarely seen outside of uh, Broadway and uh, off Broadway houses. So these lights are just too expensive. There's <laughs> no way. Uh, yeah, you you really don't. You see them in colleges. Uh, you see them in places that have trust funds. Um, you you don't see them at the community level for the most part. Yeah, I think th- this scene with her on the ropes flying around. I'm not sure what exactly they are referencing. If they're referencing anything, it, it reminds me of the musical The Who's Tommy, mm-hmm. where the first act, he's deaf, dumb, and blind. But you do see the actor playing him, doing the, see me, feel me, touch mm-hmm. me, where it's like, and there's lasers and there's smoke, where it's like his voice is speaking. So that's what it reminded me of. Uh, and then I, I also I just love uh, Marge's little... Uh, noises that she's making that oh <laughs> like i could play that as my ringtone <laughs> i mean it's it's awesome but what's funny is that those were similar sounds to the the movie we saw yesterday mm-hmm. so i mean like the the jarring like speaking and then stopping and being catatonic for a moment it, it was kind of reflective of that um no march nails the part i think totally the does. best of her yeah ability. oh yeah i think she does a good job uh then the show ends uh, and then Homer and Marge have a sweet little moment at the end where Homer realizes that he's behaving like Stanley and then he should be so supportive. And they walk off hand in hand. The only thing I don't like about this episode that I really take issue with how it was written is that the from the halfway point on, Homer takes over the story in terms of his emotional arc. And the second half is really about how Homer needs to grow up and learn to appreciate Marge. However, we never see in this episode how being in this play affects Marge. Mm -hmm. Did she have a good time? Did she love it? Did she hate it? Does she want to do another play? Right. You never see if Marge is having fun. 
during this. Like, this is all just <laughs> something that Marge has to do. It's a, another, like, thing, task that she has to accomplish. But we don't really see what fulfillment, if any, she gets out of the play. I, I would have loved to see this episode end maybe at the cast party and her being like, well, homie, I like playing an act, the role of Blanche. I also like playing the role of a mother. Yeah. And, and you want that catharsis at the end. You know, did she get... So for those of you who may, may not be on stage regularly, there's something unique to theater um, in when, when you are an actor uh, where you feel a very, very special connection between the work you're doing and your audience. That's really the power of, of live theater. Um, and... Um, you, you, in this episode, you really don't get that afterglow moment. Right? Yeah, uh, where 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 you see how it changed her life. What yeah. I did love though was the way in which it changed Homer's. Um, because for me, theater, you know, going back to you know Mr. Shakespeare here, but uh, you know, theater is holding a mirror up to nature, and that's exactly what happened here mm-hmm. by seeing Blanche's story on stage, Homer. Is, ends up being self-reflective about yeah. how his behavior, you know, is is unsupportive and, and impacting, you know, people around him. Yeah, that's true. He saw himself in Stanley and exactly. realizes that he needed to make a change. But, but by the time he makes that change, the play is over. I just want to let it be like, oh, maybe next year when we do, uh, I, I don't know, the Pelican Reef or some <laughs> other ridiculous movie from the 50s. I don't know. I can't think of when we do the bad seed, the musical, <laughs> I just would have loved to have seen like, did, did Marge get anything out of this experience? Because we don't know. Right. <laughs> it seems like she didn't because she never really does. I don't think that the Simpsons ever really do theater again. I can only think of an episode where, I mean, there's well, been they, so many. They do, um, the, the others they do are usually with the kids um, yeah. doing school plays. So that happens, but yeah. Like Ralph Wiggum being yeah, that's uh, what Washington. I was thinking. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's the episode. Uh, any other final thoughts on O Street Car? Uh, no, I, I just thought um, you know it was it, it was definitely a great example of the Simpsons at their like the Simpsons at its best. Exactly. Know, yeah. Like in terms of writing, in terms mm-hmm. of in terms of the gags, in terms of uh, the touching moments. Like it really had it all. It's a great example of that, and um, it's 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 fantastic to see. Uh, and and uh, really, a lot of what we're doing in season three is is uh, taking that that uh, that look at intersectionality between uh, between theater as it as an art form and theater and how it's portrayed uh, on TV and in the media. Yeah, and overall, I think this episode, even though it's a cartoon and it's very silly, I think I think it gets more right than it gets wrong oh, in great. terms of the emotions and kind of the the fun of doing a community theater, especially for the first time and Absolutely. dealing with a new group of personalities like uh, Lulin and opening night. And and also seeing how know. seriously um, community actors take this. You know, there's mm-hmm. often this uh, misguided misperception, this uh, misperception that, you know, they're, they're volunteering. Uh, so, you know, it's going to be lower quality. They don't care as much. I've actually found the opposite to be true pretty much 100% of the time like the the people that 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 devote their time to these community theater projects they really do give it their all and I think that's that's well displayed um, in this episode yeah I agree all right all right and that's been the episode uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star rating and possibly a review on Apple Podcasts. 
uh, five-star rating will really help with our visibility on that platform. If you would like to reach out to us, you can follow us on social media on Facebook and also Instagram at Spirits and Chat, or you can send us a message at Spirits and Chat podcast at gmail.com. As always, we want to give a big thank you to Mickey Hommel for composing our music and to Molly Roth for designing our artwork. Until next time, what's going to be our outro? Stay artsy. Uh, (laughs) Let's say break a leg. Break Break a leg. leg. (laughs) Uh, We might change that later. Bye. Bye.